tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. You're listening to the tidbit brought to you by Curate. We are live at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and I'm your host and the CEO of Curate, Kim Bryden. Do you run a small business or have dreams to start one? Well, here at the Tidbit, we've got your back. Each week, we talk through tidbits of knowledge around starting or running a small business with a food and beverage lens. You know, right now, there's a boom in conversation around new technologies in food and farming. Instead of me blabbing on about the topic, let's take a listen to my friend Renee Vasilos, an agricultural economist, on the Subscribe podcast to tell us a bit more. But what other innovations do you see on the horizon that you think are going to have an impact on, on agricultural production? Two that I'm really excited about. One is gene editing. So the, the, what CRISPR allows in terms of the speed to actually make changes. And this has an impact on seed. And so if we're going to start to see a, basically, let me back up. The seed industry has been dominated by relatively few players. What gene editing allows, it's a more democratic, lower cost process for developing innovative seed technology. And with that gene editing technology, I think we're going to start to see more diversification in terms of what kind of seeds are available. And that is going to, in turn, lead to a shift away from commodity crops only and into more diversified production. So that's one that I think is really exciting. Will, will, um, you, see, will you see, based on that you know, smaller scale farming, do those things go hand in hand where you'll see you know, smaller, more diverse sets of, 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 of plots, or is that, is that really kind of a, on a different vector? Well, I actually see it will bring more opportunity. What I think is exciting about technology in general is that it's yeah. scalable, both okay. up and down. So I think you're okay. absolutely right. It will also have a positive impact on smaller operations who have historically This is fascinating. We have gone from our crops of this great nation being exalted for diversity to our globalized supply chain, essentially reinforcing monocropping to now consumers, we're pivoting back to our roots, essentially demanding for more diversity yet again in our crops, which ultimately lead to soil health. Um, one organization that is actively thinking about the future of seed breeding is called Row 7. And it's a company founded by Dan Barber, who's the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns and the author of The Third Plate. And the Row 7 website reads, We are a seed company grounded in the notion that deliciousness might just change the world. A seed company built by chefs and breeders striving to make ingredients taste better before they ever hit the plate. It's a collaboration, a cross-pollination based on the simple premise, we believe flavor can succeed where commodification has failed, and that it can change how we eat and in turn how we grow. So if you're a chef, breeder, farmer, gardener, eater, or an enthusiast, or maybe a combination of those things, there's a seat at the table here for you and a space in the rows and on the line. It's a work in progress, but for 10,000 years or so, vegetables have always been Flavor is never finished, and we are just getting started. And I 
I personally wanted to learn more about this vegetable and fruit work in progress. What are these iterative lessons we can learn from a garden and the beauty of diversification? And fortunately, here in our backyard in the Mid-Atlantic, we have the great fortune of having a lot of historical data to draw upon, considering our founding fathers took residence here and have a lot of documentation on their agricultural practices. Seriously, let's throw back to centuries ago and learn from Thomas Jefferson himself, the gardener and the scientist, about plant diversity and lessons learned. So today, we welcome two incredible individuals, Brandon and Peggy, from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's estate. And for almost 90 years, Monticello has been maintained and kept open to the public by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which owns over 2,500 acres of Jefferson's 5,000-acre plantation. And just a little background on Brandon and Peggy. Brandon Dillard is Monticello's manager of special programs. Working primarily with the education team, Brandon focuses on the interpretation of slavery and its legacies. And Brandon joined the Thomas Jefferson Foundation in 2010 and has a passion for justice and has dedicated his life to bringing marginalized narratives to the forefront of public history. And Peggy Cornett, Monticello's historic gardener and curator of plants. In addition to managing the historic plant collection, Peggy oversees educational programs at Monticello, including the garden and grounds tour and the garden tasting tours, as well as natural history walks, lectures, and horticultural workshops throughout the year. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Brandon and Peggy. listening to The Tidbit. I'm your host, Kim Bryden, and we're live with Brandon Dillard, Monticello's Manager of Special Programs, and Peggy Cornett, Monticello's Historic Gardener and Curator of Plants. Hello, Brandon and Peggy. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, this oh, is great. You. Thank you. Yeah. So, Brandon, I want to have a frank history lesson here at the top of the show before we dive any deeper. The, the Thomas Jefferson Encyclopedia writes that Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal, and yet he enslaved more than 600 people over the course of his life. So I, I need to call this out early in the discussion, the way in which Monticello was able to function through enslavement and the labor of women and children. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge how many of our founding fathers were able to get ahead in this world through oppression. So, Brandon, can you talk more about this, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thank I mean, you. I think that that is the question. That's the paradox that many of our guests face when they arrive at Monticello. Uh, they want to know how it's possible that one man could write such beautiful words about freedom and equality and yet own people. Mm. And it's complicated, obviously. It's a complicated subject. But the reality is Jefferson struggled with this his whole life. He knew that slavery was wrong. Most of the founding generation condemned the institution of slavery. They thought that it was evil. But they were very much forward thinkers who were nonetheless men of their times. 
And if you read through Jefferson's writings about this, while he says that slavery is wrong, he has very troubling things to say about race. Mm. So it's important in order to understand it to go back a little farther and to understand that the very concepts of race and racism are rooted in the development of transatlantic slavery. You know, slavery has always existed. Slavery still exists. But race-based slavery that exists in the Americas here, it was something new and different. And the legacies of that we still experience today when we see that racism still lingers. Jefferson wrote in Query 14 on Notes of the State of Virginia, he said that he suspected that blacks were inferior to whites in endowments of both mind and body. And we can read this today, and obviously it's troubling, but it, it helps understand a little bit not only about of Thomas Jefferson's flaws, but also the flaws of our country and the world in which we live. It would be absolutely impossible for the world to exist as it does today without transatlantic slavery because of the largest forced migration in the history of humanity, which saw a disbursement of millions of African people from West Africa. And the people who live in the United States today descended from that dispersal have these stories of history that for many years were largely ignored by dominant white academic historians. So at the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which you mentioned, we've existed for 90 years giving tours. And for many of those years, this was a history that wasn't discussed much here. But we are learning all the time, and we're trying to learn more about that era of history and learn more about the diverse narratives that make up who we are as a people. Mm. So I think that given the subject of this conversation, it's important to bear in mind not only that enslaved people were responsible for maintaining the gardens, creating the gardens here at Monticello, and you know hundreds of enslaved people, some of whom were exceptionally specialized gardeners, really made this place possible. And it's important to bear in mind that the global industrial revolution would not have happened without agricultural economies based on cotton, which only existed because of an economy based on slave labor. Mm -hmm. So literally the reason that we are modern advancement in the world today, that we have this, is because of this institution. And so it's more than just Jefferson and Washington and Monroe and Madison being able to get ahead. It's where we are. It's all of us, and it affects who we are today. And that's a reckoning we need to make because some of those systemic disparities still remain. Uh, absolutely. Honestly, thinking about this brings tears to my eyes because you are absolutely right that this is not something of the past, right? This is not something that just happened at a singular moment in time. It is still occurring, and especially in the farming industry um, it, globally. And so I, I thank you for shedding light on how this nation and how we as an entire global society has come to where we are right now because of these practices and us understanding more of these inequalities as we move forward and in, in creating new systems for ourselves and acknowledging the, the pain and hurt and suffering that was caused in us getting to this place. Um, so thank you, Brandon, for sharing that. Um, and, and now that we, we have this better understanding of how Monticello function uh, and really honoring the wisdom and the care of those who tended the grounds in the garden and added to its success, I, I'd like to learn more about um, this juxtaposition of 
Jefferson the Gardener and the Scientists from You, Peggy. I, I read that the vegetable garden was kind of a laboratory where he could experiment with imported squashes and broccoli from Italy and beans collected by the Lewis and Clark expedition, figs from France, peppers from Mexico. Tell us more about the history of the garden and the grounds of Monticello. That's exactly right. Jefferson had a vast interest in um, not only cultivating crops or having crops cultivated for his table, but also for advancing um, economic crops for America. And so he was uh, always uh, searching for a, a better variety of bean or or cabbage or lettuce um, or pepper. And he was seri- was very interested in, in bringing crops to his garden to experiment with them. And uh, especially during his retirement years, we like to study his garden diary. Um, He kept a calendar uh, every year, Mm. and it was sort of like a spreadsheet of listing of plants and where they were planted and when when the seeds were sowed and when when the crops came to table. And um, it's a a fascinating, um, you know, window into how he was keeping his records, and it's really something we can still use today. In fact, we still still do use that, that same kind of format. And uh, so he would plant um, crops uh, in early spring. He'd been, begin planting peas every year, or have, and then um, recording when they when they were uh, when they germinated or or came to table. But he often would also include the fact that he failed. And some years, especially 1809, the first year when he retired to Monticello and his vegetable garden had just. Um, uh, the vegetable garden terrace, uh, which is a thousand feet long, had been, um, you know, manured by his uh, trusted um, enslaved gardener, Wormley Hughes. Um, this gardener was—it's really a phenomenal um, uh, terrace. And uh, the first year that he returned to Monticello, uh, he had many crops that failed that year. And it's just interesting how this this worked. But he was—he was really un, unafraid to to admit that and. Um, he also, though, was looking for crops that, you know, had a, a longer growing period or mm. a better flavor or were um, um, perhaps uh, more resistant to cold. And um, and so uh, it's something that, that we, we tend to continue to study and and um, find it very, very fascinating to learn from, from yeah. his successes, successes and failures. That is fascinating. And, and yeah. I also read an interesting statement that, the garden was viewed almost like in the Ellis Island of yeah. <laughs> of yeah. plants or of seeds. Yeah. And what an, what a beautiful metaphor also for this nation. So anything to elaborate on that? Yes. Well, it, it it's quite interesting to 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 note that Jefferson was growing crops that a lot of his uh, contemporaries um, were shied away from. Uh, for example, at you know Mount Vernon and other uh, sites of the period, uh, they really focused on on a lot of the European crops, the coal crops, the lettuces, and the root crops that were uh, that do well more in a in a cooler climate. But um, Jefferson was experimenting with crops that were from Africa and South America, and uh, his garden was. If you've ever visited it, it's really a uh, uh, it's, it's southeast facing. It's a hot terrace. It's um, really a microclimate um, on the mountain, and so. Mm. Uh, he could uh, grow crops in some cases that his uh, neighbors were not able to to uh, cultivate because of of this this warming up of the garden early in the spring and into the fall. So he was growing, you know, peanuts uh, from 
from Africa and tomatoes from South America and uh, crops that were brought through the slave trade through the Caribbean, um, sesame, um, okra. Uh, uh, so it was really a, a, an, uh, over 330 different varieties that we've been able to um, document in his garden uh, throughout his lifetime, which is, is quite remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank and you. And, of course, Lewis, you mentioned Lewis and Clark. And yeah. They uh, sent um, crops back from uh, part of their charge was to to discover economic crops that the Native Americans were growing, and they were sending back um, uh, aricara beans from the tribes um, in, uh, in, the, in the Dakotas and, um, you know, mandan corn and, and even um, uh, Hidatsa uh, crops as well from those tribes. And so, um, uh, you know, in, and it's interesting that we, we've been able to actually bring some of these back into the garden today and, and try to showcase, you know, these different crops that Native Americans were cultivating to a high degree of sophistication, actually, mm. um, in their own, you know, lands. Wow. And mm-hmm. that is beautiful. And I... I'm so excited that we were able to, again, lay the foundation of both the Monticello Estate and also the gardens. So now we can, as you said, Peggy, how can we learn from these um, great learnings and failures of this entire production? So we're going to take a quick break and then learn more about the the nitty gritty and what we can, as small business owners, learn from this um, operation. So we'll take a quick break. Be right back. Listening to the tidbit, and we are back with Peggy Cornett, Monticello's historic gardener and curator of plants, and Brandon Dillard, Monticello's manager of special programs. Hello, Brandon. Hello, Peggy. Hello. Yeah, Hi. we're back. Hello. <laughs> so, Peggy, we <laughs> yeah. mentioned at the top of the show uh, gene modification in seeds becoming yeah. quite the industry, as well as the increased conversation around regenerative agriculture and, and soil health. So can you tell us more about 19th century cultivate, cultivation techniques and what lessons can we learn from that era to help preserve our planet and sustainable food production? Yes, well, you know, in Jefferson's time, of course, he didn't have the modern equipment that we enjoy today, but uh, he he was uh, credited with an, actually an invention in agriculture, which was the moldboard plow of least resistance which is kind of a crazy name, but it's a, a plow that uh, what he was basically trying to deal with erosion, which is if you live on a mountain, you can uh, you know relate to that. And uh, erosion was a huge problem with uh, when he returned to Monticello um, after his uh, uh, times as political office. Mm-hmm. Um, he found that his fields were terribly eroded, and uh, so they tried to instate uh, uh, his he developed these plans for crop rotation and contour plowing, um, which are still very good, you know, techniques today. Um, he understood that uh, the the culture of tobacco, of course, was a, 
was uh, not only hard on the land, but also uh, very hard on the uh, enslaved uh, people who had to to grow these crops. It was was a very uh, uh, long-season crop that's uh, very difficult on labor. Mm. And so he tried to introduce um, wheat production uh, during the 1790s, um, and that was he met with some success with that, um, but uh, it was a big transition. And um, you know, tobacco, of course, was an important uh, cash crop. Right. But in his gardens themselves, he was also um, uh, very um, aware that soil health was you know, in- incredibly important for the health of your of your garden. Uh, at one point, his his granddaughter was complaining about the the um, her her garden looking very, very, uh, her plants did not grow very well. And he said, well, it's due to the leanness of your soil and that next year we'll, uh, you know, attack your garden with uh, heavy doses of manure. Um, he really believed in, in, in manuring the garden. Um, in fact, uh, the vegetable garden terrace that I described earlier, um, his uh, enslaved gardener, Wormley Hughes, was uh, mainly responsible for manuring this entire garden, which meant hauling uh, wagon loads of manure from a a, a, a a farm about three miles away and bringing it to you know, each bed and unloading it. You can imagine the the difficulty of that work, but um, it was just a way of bringing health to the garden. Mm. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, we can take uh, lessons from that of you know starting with the with your garden from the ground up and. Uh, and making healthy plants that way. He, Puns when intended. Yeah. <laughs> in, in his his day, some of the diseases we have today are the result of growing the same crops year after year and, exactly. and insects build up. And so he was, in a, in a sense, uh, living in a golden age when, before some of these problems really started affecting, you know, our crops. So um, yeah. in that sense, yeah. I, I just I want to honor for a second, um, you were mentioning... Wormley Hughes and I just want to give voice to and honor all of their contribution to your garden can can you tell us any more about Wormley Hughes well he was um, considered the the head gardener the lead gardener but he had been trained by a Scottish gardener so he and he really had an aptitude and I think really uh, 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 for gardening and he seemed to do um, a lot of of uh, the type of labor at Monticello that entailed digging in the earth, <laughs> which is uh, something I can really relate to. But I mean, he not only um, was working in in, the, in tending uh, or manuring the vegetable garden, but he was also um, a skilled flower gardener. And so we have records of of him uh, with Jefferson when they were laying out the flower borders um, on the west front of the house, and he he would carry the measuring line. Or Jefferson would carry the measuring line while uh, Wormley Hughes uh, carried the spade and hoe. And so you can kind of imagine uh, that scene. Um, but, you know, Jefferson trusted him because he he um, knew how to grow, uh, he knew how to save bulbs, for example, and seeds and, and when to plant things. And so um, uh, he was, in a sense, instructing Jefferson's granddaughters on how to garden as well mm. because he had this experience in this. And uh, we were just discussing earlier that um, his, uh, you know, we've done uh, over the years a uh, project called Getting Word for the last 25 years, which has been a remarkable study of uh, tracking down those who were descendants of the enslaved here at Monticello. Mm. And um, the, it, it, we've discovered that those who descended from 
Wormley Hughes, um, unbeknownst to them, they were they're all they're really into gardening. Whoa. And it turns out that <laughs> they were so you know pleased to find out that their their ancestor was really such a an esteemed gardener at Monticello. Wow, what an energetic connection. Yeah, and, I yeah. mean, honestly, it's it's what uh, I think is so beautiful about most of the farmers or anybody who works with the earth. There is such a beautiful um, energy that goes between the individual and the soil and the plants being grown. And then also with their offspring, a lot of family farms, yep. for example. Um, so, wow, that is fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and speaking of family farms and possibly family farm businesses. I just, you know, here we are at the tidbit. We share tidbits of knowledge around starting and running a small business with a food and beverage lens. So in running a business, one must always be testing and gathering feedback and iterating to stay relevant in their market Mm -hmm. and to meet their customers' needs. And in order to do this, oh my goodness, record keeping and data collection, it is vital. Um, And I have a feeling that Thomas Jefferson may have a few tips and best practices here. So Peggy and Brandon, I would love if each of you could describe um, Jefferson's learning process and maybe a tidbit of knowledge we can take from his methodology, or maybe even how you've been able to grow as professionals by looking back at his robust data collection. One of you take it away. Well, you know, I've I've, uh, spent many years of my life um, reading Jefferson's Garden Book, and um, so I think that uh, just the the detail that he gets into is is quite quite impressive. He um, was um, he was always searching, you know, to the greatest degree on 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 where to find certain crops and plants, and then. trying to understand from experts or or others that, you know, provided seed for him, you know, the best time to plant. Uh, So he was learning from people like Bernard McMahon and and, uh, botanists like uh, the the John and William Bartrams from Philadelphia. Um, He was taking their knowledge and applying it to Monticello. But I think it was something that he, you know, of course grew up, uh, gardening, uh, or uh, had great interest in gardening as a young man, and and also with nature, and and I think his his uh, ability to observe nature uh, very um, intimately was very important. Um, uh, you know, he he uh, was interested in you know every bud that opens and every breath uh, that blows around me, as he once wrote, and so I think his observations. Um, uh, to that d- detail was very important, and as and as I mentioned earlier in his uh, garden diary with the um, the garden calendars that he kept, uh, you know you can find how he was he was um, rotating crops in the garden and um, organizing the the, the garden in, in certain ways uh, that might enhance the growth of, of uh, plants. Um, one some some ideas maybe weren't very successful, but one year he planted an, an entire square of, of tomatoes and surrounded it with a border of okra plants, which um, kind of uh, makes me wonder if he was uh, thinking about his okra soup that uh, uh, the recipe we have is, is quite interesting. <laughs> it's almost like a gumbo, you know, with uh, okra and tomatoes and, and Yeah, potatoes. he was planting based on yes. the recipe. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
And uh, one one year he planted, he divided the garden into roots, fruits, and leaves. So mm. a bed would be all leaf crops, or a next bed would be all root root crops, and and then fruit crops. And so um, I think in some ways he was uh, trying to design the garden in, in an aesthetic way as well as in a functional way. And sometimes it worked and probably sometimes it didn't. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah. We we actually on a previous episode um, talked about the the tension between productivity and creativity and how mm-hmm. productivity requires, of course, this constant output, whereas creativity, you need time and space and daydreaming and laziness. And, and maybe, and what I'm hearing from you is keeping... Uh, like journaling, right? And understanding right. Uh, to the observation, as you said, the observation of all of these finite details. And if you're in constant productive efficiency mode, you miss out on those beautiful details that can really influence the outcome yeah. of, of your operation. Um, so that is very fascinating. And listener, if you haven't listened to the other episode on self-health, on creativity and productivity, this is a great segue for that. Um, and well, you put that very well. I like that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank and you. Yeah. Brandon, is there anything that you uh, have gleaned from the record keeping, the data collection, or even just successes or failures of Jefferson's operation that, that have really resonated with you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think I'm going to start on a grander scale and then zoom in. But based on what you talked about in this episode already, when we look at a lack of biodiversity today, when we look at monoculture agriculture, the roots for that really come from this time period. You know, plantation agricultural economies are scalable on a massive uh, scale, and that's what happened to the Caribbean Isles. That's what happened to the southeastern United States, Mm -hmm. is that it was all put into production of a single cash crop for personal gain. This is also during the time period when you see an emergence of an idea of profit, like the idea that you can produce. And you mentioned the tension between production and creativity. I think one of the things that is always evident with Jefferson is this tension between production and creativity. And unlike the later antebellum period, when that idea of extraction was less important to the plantation owners because they were, honestly, they were always concerned with profit to such an extent that they didn't care what they did to the land because they knew that there was more of it readily available. And this gets back to some of those historical injustices, not only slavery, but also dispossession of American Indian lands. They just kept moving west. But Jefferson did not want to do that. He did not want to leave Virginia. He did not want to leave where he was from. And he used science and he used creativity and he looked at what was happening around him. And he knew that tobacco destroyed the health of the soil. And so he started thinking about different ways to improve that health. And one of the ways in which slave owners constantly justified their ownership of human beings was by saying that enslaved people were incapable of caring for themselves. But the reality there is, is, well, the reality of the lie is belied by the existence of people like Wormley Hughes. You know, here's a man who was forced into labor his entire life as a gardener, and we have no idea how he felt about it. But you mentioned the possibility of connection between the person and that which they create. It is possible that Wormley Hughes felt that way. It absolutely is. It's possible that he suffered so much he couldn't. But we know that he was a productive gardener. We know that When it came down to it, Jefferson's walking along with the string, and Jefferson is called the gardener, but who's actually doing the work? Right. And who actually knows the differences 
of what should be planted when and who's the one that's digging down in the earth to find it. I think that for me, it's a culmination of all of it. And people like Peggy and I are constantly looking for answers in the past. But Jefferson was a man who knew that he wanted to see improvement. And that improvement was less about his own personal gain and more about the improvement of the nation. He said that he considered the greatest act of any citizen was the introduction of a useful species of plant to its culture. You know, Thomas Jefferson was a man who really believed that through constant surveying, through scientific endeavor, we would always improve. Mm. Now, I'll just add one thing about, uh, we do have one uh, quote or statement that Wormley Hughes used to say, because he, he seemed to be an optimistic person even in, in the face of, of uh, you know, being an enslaved person, is that he would say, I am in no wise discouraged. And so um, I think, you know, in the in the light of the fact that he was living, you know, under sl- the, the burden of slavery, um, he... He had this attitude. I think he was trying to perhaps encourage his his own family, perhaps. But it was it was a quote that's attributed to him quite often. So, mm. wow! Thank you both for for sharing that wisdom. And really, I you just said, Brandon, and this really resonated with me. Being able to answer these big questions about again where we are today by looking to the past and, and understanding mm. the threads that have as we said at the top of the show, really brought us to this place we are now. Um, and so how can we, as listeners, get involved at Monticello? What's been going on? How can we follow what you're doing online? Or how can we show up and, and really <laughs> dive in deeper to all of these maybe questions we have to, to ask you all and questions unanswered? What can we do? Um. Well, I'll start by just saying, you know, there there are plenty of ways you can get involved on, online. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a very active uh, Facebook page called the Monticello Farm and Garden, and you can join that, and, and we try to post on that every single day with something about the garden or some kind of uh, knowledge about plants. Um, you can certainly uh, purchase seeds that we collect from the gardens. Uh, that's one of the... The things that we've done for 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 years, for decades, is to collect uh, seed from the flowers and vegetables and herbs and package them at Monticello. It's all done in house, and um, during the month of March, you can get free shipping. So we have a little promo there for for uh, incentive for buying seeds from oh, us. Amazing! So just go to MonticelloShop.org, um, and of course, if you come to Monticello, we have all kinds of programming going on in the spring. Um, Wildflower walks in April uh, on several dates, um, and uh, and you can purchase tickets online for that. And we have a, an open house at the end of April, which is the beginning of uh, uh, or at the toward toward the end of Garden Week in um, uh, Virginia, and it's an open house at the Center for Historic Plants at Tufton Farm. And so that you can come, and it's it's actually free and open to the public, and you can learn about um, growing uh, edible plants. Uh, we have work, uh, little uh, lectures, workshops, tours, and, and another chance to purchase seeds and plants uh, on site. So if you go to our website, I think you'll find all. There's also, of course, lots of um, information about uh, the gardens and about you know articles about the gardens online um, as well. Uh, so, 
And just to add to that, there's similar information about uh, slavery at Monticello. Uh, Peggy mentioned the Getting Word Oral History Project, the African-American Oral History Project. That has its own website. Just Google Getting Word Monticello. You can learn more there and listen from descendants themselves as they tell the stories of their ancestors here at Monticello. And I would just uh, put the bit out there that, you know, you visit Monticello, you're not visiting a house. You're visiting a historic site that has several different tours included in every day pass. So when you come here, you, you purchase a ticket, you can see the inside of the house. That's a tour, a slavery at Monticello outside tour. And uh, starting soon, we'll have gardens and grounds tours when the season kicks up, which is April just around 1st. the corner. Just around the corner, April 1st. Yeah, we're really trying to, um, you know, to talk about Monticello as a plantation, not just the, the, the house on the hill that uh, Jefferson lived in. And, you know, it's a it's a it's kind of a holistic view viewpoint now and and to really discuss the the plantation at large that you described earlier yeah yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and and not having um a just a for lack of a better term not a whitewashed view of just <laughs> the thomas jefferson estate but really again bringing to light all that has uh transpired by getting us to this moment in time um, and really showing the entirety of the property and all of the different narratives and stories that existed simultaneously. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. And, I, I you know, great. just to, in doing, we're also remembering that so much of the legacy of who we are as a government today is from Thomas Jefferson's words, mm-hmm. this idea of self-governance, that people are uh, by rights free and equal. Those ideas are discussed everywhere here. So it's mm-hmm. something that all comes together for one full narrative in a way that's far more enlightening about who we are as a people today than perhaps it was in previous years. Wow. And farming was really an ideal of Jefferson's. And, you know, he, he felt like farmers were the chosen people of God. And, and um, you know, it, it's it, he had a totally different attitude about, um, you know, how Americans should live. And perhaps, you know, we, we can't live up to that today. But, um, uh, you know, he did uh, really believe in the in the small farmer and uh, self-sufficiency and that sort of uh, attitude. Thank yeah. you both so much. Um, and Thank if you, you are yeah. just tuning in for your first episode of The Tidbit, I just want you to know that this show is based on a bi-weekly newsletter that we send out at Curate called The Tidbit. And in it, we discuss what we're reading, eating, drinking, listening to, and learning. Five quick morsels of information to get you in the know and on top of your game. So head over to curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E dot co to sign up. And we would love if more budding entrepreneurs and listeners like you could find out about The Tidbit. Our mission at Curate includes the sharing of education and access to resources. And the best way to reach more folks like you is to leave a review in iTunes. So I would be super appreciative if you'd head over to your app, leave a little tidbit on there about what you've learned here today, learned here on this show. And until next time, everyone, I want you to remember to scale thoughtfully and source locally.